Welcome to That's Deep with Eden and Jess. We are reflecting on our conversation with a very interesting and um, well, well-traveled, truly well-traveled Gary Arndt of the podcast, Everything, Everywhere. A million downloads a month. <laughs> That's amazing. So, um, yeah, it was a really, really good conversation. Yeah, I'm fascinated by how it started, by how his journey started. He shared with mm-hmm. his, you know, um, the desire to want to travel, yeah. the, the, the inexperience mindset that he took with it, mm-hmm. how he started, um, sold a business, sold a house, and went west. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what that takes, I think, um, says a lot about who he is as a person and the mindset that he uses throughout Mm -hmm. his travel and his photography, uh, and even, you know, the podcast journey that he shared with us. Mm -hmm. Um, He's not just open to learning new things. He's passionate about it. He's passionate about learning not only even just learning, but also experiencing. Mm-hmm. Right? He was going to be away for a year, and it was 10. Yeah. Um, and he didn't explore typical places. He explored places that were unique, places that not many people know about. Um, and I like that was a big takeaway for me, and it made me... F- it made me think differently about travel yeah. and how I might travel in the future. Yeah, the uh, untourism, I think, yeah. is the term that I've heard it described as. Mm-hmm. But he he shared relevant examples and mm-hmm. you know purposefully visiting things that most don't know about, mm-hmm. um, experiencing that, experience experiencing um, real culture versus. Uh, yeah, what tourists might experience in, in the busy places within a, a city or a country. Right. Yeah, uh, he talked a little bit about culture. Uh, I find that fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, his take on that. Um, he hadn't taken a picture, and, and now he's a world-class photographer. Mm-hmm. I guess that's how that starts, mm-hmm. right? You just do you it. Just do, yeah. We talked about that, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Um, his ability to publish and share publicly Mm -hmm. and the reasons that he does that. Yeah. Um, To incentivize him to continue to improve on how he photographs, on writing, on just in that, right, when he first started traveling, it was blogging and now it's podcasting. So um, just like making his, his take on making something public as a way to um, make it more, to incentivize your um, improvement on that thing. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it helps him hold himself accountable yeah, for the thing. Yes. Uh, he yes, does a yes, podcast yes. every day. Uh, yeah. He does the research and what he described as writing a term paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and the recording of the audio is the easiest part that he describes. Mm-hmm. So um, we talked to him a little bit about that, what that process was like and how he maintains that. 
yeah. uh, and how he maintains energy to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, talked about academia, his his take on academia, which I think is very interesting. Um, that idea of experience being more important than the degree, mm -hmm. right? Um, he talks a little bit about algorithm bubbles and how his... My takeaway from when he was comparing the or talking about algorithm bubbles and then talking about his podcast and all of the different spectrum of information that he shares on his on his podcast all of the different variety of of information that he shares i took that as like almost trying to combat that those algorithms because it's all different you get something completely different every single day and so there's maybe there's a way but right like it's it's um almost like pop-up trivia yep yeah <laughs> right? that's his value proposition yeah. I think, of the podcast yeah. is um yeah you don't know necessarily what you want but but um let me let me help you learn something new or yeah. discover something that you didn't know that you wanted to know mm -hmm. or be interested yeah. and curious about a topic yeah uh in short format mm -hmm. um to get you thinking uh yeah about the unknown unknowns it's like a rabbit hole of curiosity he he describes a particular episode and how in that episode if you you know, zoom in a little bit further, you can take a piece of that and expand that and then zoom in further, take a piece of that, expand that. So like there's no limit to the number of topics that he can um, talk about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's looking for a travel companion. It sounded like you were interested. I'm very interested. Yep. Yes. Gary, I'm very interested <laughs> in traveling with you. Please, let's do that. I'll, I'll be con connecting with him and other um, podcasters in the Fox Valley area um, at our well, Appleton Podcast co-op meetings. Mm -hmm. um, we will share in the link a couple of or a few of the episodes that we talked about um, on the Pantheon, Arbor Day, because um, those were close to the day that we were recorded. And then um, we also talked about the podcasts on uh, logical fallacies and confirmation bias, which I think will be really good for people to to listen to. Um, His blog is fascinating. Uh, His writing yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, you see it in in his blog so we'll link to that mm -hmm. um and then yeah explore his podcast yeah um yep yeah so thank you gary for um joining us for having the conversation and i look forward to um continuing to uh get to know you and hopefully travel with you at some point and um thank you all for listening appreciate you gary thanks for being on Welcome to That's Deep with Eden and Jess. 
today we are talking with Gary Arndt of the podcast Everything Everywhere. And I think we'll go ahead and just jump right in to some questions. Go for it. <laughs> Thanks for being on, Gary. Appreciate you, you being here. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so let's, since you have this podcast that you've been running since 2020, let's talk about um, the journey to get there, what that looked like for you. Um, what do you mean, like in terms of so, why I launched the yes, show? Yes, why you launched the show. Oh, well, <clears throat> so I'd been traveling around the world since 2007. Mm-hmm. Sold my home, put my stuff in storage, told everyone I'd be gone for a year, ended up being gone for a decade. Um, and I eventually got an apartment, but I would still travel a half to a third of the year. Mm-hmm. Should we stop there? What sure. <laughs> That's a big deal. Yes. That's a big decision. Yes. Uh, so the business, it wasn't, the a, it wasn't, I, I had an internet company that I started in the early nineties, Yeah. way before the internet was a thing. Yeah. Like before Netscape was even a thing. Um, I sold that in 1998 and to a large company. They, I, well, I conned them into sending me around the world to talk to their various offices about internet stuff. This is like when the internet boom was, you know, in in full swing. And so they sent me on a three-week tour in January of 1999, which I vividly remember because 1999 was on the Eiffel Tower. And I went to Mm -hmm. Tokyo, Taipei, Singapore, Paris, Brussels, Frankfurt, and London. And I had never been anywhere before. And I went Mm -hmm. all the way around the world. I had to get a passport. And, uh... It was a fascinating experience. The first night, I remember, I flew from Minneapolis to Tokyo. I stood up all night, partially due to jet lag and partially just watching Japanese television, watching game shows. I had no idea what was going on (laughs) and just noticing every little thing that was different. The light switches, the bathroom, the toilet, everything. Hmm. And that was kind of something... Uh, in the course of my travels that I realized, like when I was real young, we took a trip to Niagara Falls once we drove through Canada. And in Canada, pretty much everything is the same mm-hmm. as in the United States, except little things are different. Sure. They'll, uh, the labels in foods will be in French. Okay. Or it will also yeah. be in French. It'll be in kilograms instead of pounds. Right. Things yeah. like that. And you, your eye is drawn to the things that are different because everything else is the same. In Japan your eye is drawn to the things that are the same because everything else is different. Mm. So they have 7-Elevens all over Japan. And you're like, oh, they have 7-Elevens. And you go and it's like, oh, they have Lay's potato chips, except it's seaweed flavor or prawn flavor (laughs) or stuff like that. And instead of the rolling hot dog thing that they have, they have fish balls. Um, But your your eyes are naturally drawn to the things that you can recognize. And I always thought that that was just this interesting dichotomy of how you can tell how foreign or exotic a place is mm. to you, because it's all relative, mm. um, based on what your eye is drawn to. Mm. <clears throat> mm. But anyways, I ended up traveling because I was bored. Yeah. Um, that's the honest truth. I, after I sold my company, I started another company. Then the dot-com bubble hit, and that we had a really good deal going at the time. Uh, it was a network of video game websites. We sold our entire ad inventory to CNET, and one day they called us and saying, we're stopping this because this is right in the middle of the, when the stock market was collapsing, all the tech stocks. That destroyed that company. I went back to school for several years, studied geology and geophysics, 
I realized that academia sucked. So I didn't want to pursue it. I saw these PhD students just having a miserable time and it was not something I wanted to do. So I came up with the idea of traveling around the world. And um, so, yeah, I did that for a very long time. Yeah. Um, the research aspect of a PhD student, uh, the intensity of it, the, how, they, how they were feeling and what it was like to be them, you recognized that it wasn't for you? One, I enjoy learning more than I enjoy doing research. Mm. That's something I learned. Second, just the environment seemed extremely toxic. Yeah. That what uh, PhD students are put through and the whole system that has been built up over time in, in academia, I think is just ridiculous. And I think more and more people are starting to realize that, mm. that it's kind of this its own bubble and it's been that way yeah. for a very long time. That um, kind of works by its own rules and you really don't need to have a PhD and the people who do pursue a PhD end up, you know, bankrupt or close to it, mm. especially, you know, pursuing advanced degrees is extremely expensive um, for a job that's probably not going to pay very well. And it takes years, if not the better part of a decade to do and all basically to show off to your peers. Yeah. Right. That's really the thing that I found motivated everyone yeah. was showing off to other geologists. And it's true in every, every field that I've met people in that that was the thing. Interesting. Less about the impact you can have with your research. Less about oh, there's so making much, a difference. There's, there's the vast majority of research in almost every field is completely irrelevant. Yeah. It's done for the sake of doing research and publishing yeah. because the, mm. the universities only care about the quantity. They don't, they're not in a position to judge the quality of research, right? Some administrator, they just look at, oh, what are the number, how many papers did you publish or the prestige of the journal and that's it. Okay. And so in a, some of these disciplines, you get these things like, well, we looked at whether or not people were more um, optimistic or pessimistic on an up escalator versus a down escalator. One, who cares? <laughs> and two, nobody can replicate your findings. So even if it, you know, so even if it did matter, it's probably not true. Mm. Uh, but this, this is a mm. whole other thing that I can mm. talk about for ages, mm. but uh, there's, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the it's in certain fields, mainly fields that deal with human beings. Right. It's not a problem in chemistry and straight physics. It's a problem in economics, nutrition, psychology, sociology, and anything that studies people. Yeah. Where mm. you can basically come up with whatever kind of results you want by process of p-hacking or, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what p-hacking is. Mm -mm. So you have to show, a, a P is basically the, the <clears throat> confidence you have in something. And the set standard, and there's no reason for it, is 0 0.05, that's like 5%. The problem is, if you, that means if you throw 20 things against the wall, one of them is gonna probably stick, which means, oh, well, this meets the confidence level of you know, 0 0.05. It's like, no, it doesn't. It just means that you did enough things and one of them by chance uh, you know, turned out that way. And then not to mention that you can massage and manipulate data and whatnot. And yeah. 
That has nothing to do with what we're going to talk. Mm. We're supposed to talk about. No, yeah, no but it's interesting. The human yeah, factor is interesting is. to yeah. me. The study of human beings, the research right. aspect of that, and how you apply those findings to something meaningful to have impact. But most most findings are not meaningful. That's the problem. And a lot of epidemiological studies. Uh, there's a there's a guy out of Stanford named John Ioannidis who's like a he studies science. Basically concluded eighty percent of the epidemiological studies that are being published are wrong. They're either wrong or they can't support what they claimed. Yeah. This is across all fields. And yeah, it's it's become a huge problem in psychology where where they tried replicating some of the most famous studies and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You've heard the one of like the kids eating marshmallows and they're told, you know, well, if you wait 10 minutes, you know, you get two marshmallows. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they had the willpower to wait, they then looked 30 years later to see how they did in life. Mm-hmm. Turns out it was, you know, everyone quotes this study. It's like, oh, self-control will, you know, you'll do better. Turns out completely bogus. <laughs> Yet everybody has been quoting this for decades right. as if it's the gospel truth mm-hmm. and it's not. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anyways, back to your yeah your journey on travel. Uh, we, that's fascinating to me. Uh, I want to talk more about that at sure. some point. Um, you said you were taken off for a year, and um, it was a ten year journey. It turns out your the trip. world is really big, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't like when I started. I bought the book like a thousand one things to see before you die, mm. and oh, I want to go see this and this, and it's very easy to come up with this list, but in the act of doing it, you find things also in a given area that you didn't even know about. Yeah. And before you start traveling, or what most people know, is that they, they don't know about that much stuff. And it's just, you know, th- there's no reason they necessarily would until they get to a place. Uh, it's, it's a big problem with, um, one of the biggest problems in travel is the problem of over-tourism. People are all visiting the same spot at the same time. Mm, yeah. It's not that there's too many people traveling. It's that places like Venice and Barcelona and other places get hammered with people and they get millions of visitors. Um, I believe I saw a uh, magnet on your refrigerator with the Barcelona. Was it the Sagrada Familia? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you've been to Barcelona? <laughs> yeah. Okay. One hour north of Barcelona, mm-hmm. Barcelona. Mm-hmm. is uh, the city of Girona. I spent mm. three months in Girona. Okay. Nobody goes to Girona. Okay. Girona is where they filmed some of the theme- scenes from Game of Thrones that are all in the, the shot on the steps of the Sept. It's a, it's oh, okay. a fantastic old city. Uh, I had a great time there. Nobody goes there. And there's all kinds of places like that. Yeah. Like it, everyone goes to Italy. They're going to go to Rome, Florence, Venice. Mm. That's your typical one. Mm-hmm. They don't go to Lucca, which is also in um, uh, not not far away from Florence. Mm-hmm. It's in Tuscany, San Gimignano. Nobody goes there. And when I say nobody, I mean they get they get some people, but sure. nothing yeah. compared to what you're seeing in these other places. Yeah. In Venice, which is when it's a great city, I'm not saying they're not, mm-hmm. but you can take a 20 minute train ride from the Venice train station, and um, you can be in Padua. Padua has the oldest botanical garden in Europe, the largest public square, fantastic cathedral, the Scrivingi Chapel, which is sort of the prototype of the Sistine Chapel, and all this great stuff, and no one, no one even knows about it, no one bothers mm. to visit. 
And there's a lot of things like that. I, I get a lot of people like ask for advice, and the advice I usually end up giving them is, you know, stuff they didn't even realize. For example, if you wanted to take a trip to the Caribbean, where would you go? What would be the first thing you'd think of? I have no idea. Oh, I'm on. not. I don't know. <laughs> where in the Caribbean? I don't know the world. Where well. do Where do people go on vacation in the Caribbean? <laughs> Most people would probably say Jamaica. Oh, okay, sure. All right. Yeah. Done to death. Again, mm -hmm. nothing wrong with Jamaica. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of islands in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. and they don't get nearly as much attention. The my one of my favorite islands, probably my, the favorite one, is the island of Dominica. Okay. Dominica. The reason why people, it's the least visited country in the Western Hemisphere. The mm -hmm. reason why is because it's so mountainous, they can't put in a large runway for an airport. Mm -hmm. And because they can't put in a large runway, there are no direct flights from Europe or Miami, where most of the tours come from. Sure. So nobody goes there. You yes. have to take the extra step of flying to one of the islands on either side, like St. Lucia or um, Martinique, and then take a ferry or a short plane trip. But oh, that okay. extra step... Yeah means that nobody bothers to go. Yeah. Yet it's one of the best experiences you can have in the Caribbean. See, this is inspiring me now to travel to places like Dominica that. has yeah. 365 rivers. Okay. For wow. an island that has a population wow. of maybe 80,000 people, they have hot springs, they have a boiling lake. Mm -hmm. That is actually a boiling lake, and they have to warn people, no, 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 this is really a boiling <laughs> lake, don't put your feet in the lake. And then every year someone does, and they have to get evac'd out. <laughs> Because it's actually a boiling lake. Mm -hmm. Mm. So that's evolved over time for you. You went to those places originally as your first travel I, outside I, of the United States. So what I did is I started going west. That was the plan. So I started in Minneapolis, drove to Dallas, took a train to Los Angeles, flew to Hawaii, learned how to scuba dive. Then I flew to Tahiti so I could get to Easter Island. And then I found Tahiti so ridiculously expensive that I went to the Cook Islands, which I enjoyed immensely. And these are <clears throat> one-way trips without much of an itinerary or a plan in terms of how long you're gonna stay or what you're gonna do, you're exploring. Go west, that was the idea. It took me about half a year to cross the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Cook Islands, New Zealand, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, American Samoa, uh, from there I went to New Caledonia, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, with brief stays. I got uh, in Nauru, got denied entry into Kiribati, which is a whole other story. Um, and then I did the north part of the north of the equator, all the Micronesian countries, uh, Marshall Islands, uh, Micronesia, Palau, and then went to the Philippines. With hopes of sharing your journey? With a plan of, of blogging or taking photos? I had a website from yeah. when I started, and yeah. I bought a very expensive camera thinking that it would take good photos, and I learned in the first week that that's not how it works because mm. a lot of the photos were bad. And so I started a process that took several years of just learning how to do photography. Right. So then where did that kind of desire to document the travel come from? Just because you were traveling? I've always had places? a personal website. Yeah. I mean, I've been online for right. since it started. Yeah. Uh, when I did the trip around the world when I worked for my company, I had a little website that I started for the people in the office. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was kind of just a natural thing for me to do. Okay. To just share where I was going. And so 
that's kind of how that started. And then it kind of became popular because when I was when I started traveling, I was visiting places that people don't usually visit. Right. Because most people that go on a trip around the world, it's kind of the same itinerary because I met all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to go to a bunch of major capital cities in Europe, something in Asia, probably Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, or Bangkok, and then maybe stop in Australia, and then maybe there's a stop in the middle of the Pacific, either in Fiji or they'll go through Auckland, and then they go to Los Angeles and wind up back in Europe. Mm. And so I can, that's kind of what the, the typical route is. And I was going to countries that people have either never heard of or they heard of them, but they had no idea, you know, what they were. Mm-hmm. And I was giving, you know, thoughts and insights about it. So then as you're traveling to these different places, did you meet more people that were from the area? Did you see other, you know, connect with other people that were traveling <coughs> well, to, that wanted to travel to these different places? And kind of what was that experience? When I, so when I started doing this, there were very few people doing what I was doing. Okay. I could tell someone I was traveling for six months and I'm like, wow. Now there are just tons of people doing this, mm-hmm. right? There's TikTok and Instagram are full of people and the internet has made it much easier for, for people to do. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of being a digital nomad, which wasn't even a term when, when I was doing this, uh, didn't exist. So it was a very different environment. Mm-hmm. And, and just to give you an idea, I started traveling in March of 2007. Steve Jobs announced the iPhone in February of 2007 and it didn't even go on sale until June so there were no smartphones Mm -hmm. when I started doing this Um, I bought a iPod touch at the Ginza Apple store in Tokyo and I thought it was like this is the most incredible thing in the world Mm -hmm. it didn't even have phone access or anything or internet connection you had to get a Wi-Fi there was no camera on it but I still thought it was incredible Mm -hmm. uh, just what I could do with it and uh, now it's become ubiquitous. You can have international roaming anywhere you go. And it's changed travel a lot. And just to give you an example, I was in Jerusalem in 2009 during Holy Week. And I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And there were pilgrims there and, and they were visiting. I went back eight years later. Mm-hmm. Completely different experience. Because everybody just had their phone out mm-hmm. just in front of their face taking pictures of everything and that's all it was yeah so you originally started traveling for leisure then yeah i didn't have a job or anything when yeah. i started i yeah just sold my house and my business and right. traveled for the hell of it yeah um, with a mindset of curiosity though i mean the mindset was or a plan or a, i'm going to document this shared uh, journey or i'm going to find what's next for my me. original plan to be honest was to do video but it was extremely difficult because in 2007, you couldn't buy cameras that didn't use tape. And I bought a video camera, and even though it used small digital cartridges, mm-hmm. I had a 2007 era laptop and I had to import the, the, the video from the tape to the laptop. And I was sitting here in a bungalow on an island in Fiji trying to do this. I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Um, because it just, it's not like it is now, right? Right. Yeah. Where you can just take out your phone and record a very lengthy, whatever, mm-hmm. and you don't have to worry about storage or anything else. Yeah. Um, and, and the camera quality on a phone is, is, is good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really good. So it's changed totally. And YouTube was, it existed, but it wasn't a thing, you know, like it is now. So 
that was my original intent and I guess I was kind of ahead of the time so I just focused on still photography. Mm -hmm. um, what were some of the most memorable activities that you did as you were traveling? Memorable moments or even people? Been in the water with great white sharks. Mm. Um, did that off the coast of South Africa. I landed and got launched from a nuclear aircraft carrier. That was pretty cool. Uh, got to ride in a Formula One car. It was mm -hmm. a customized car, so they had passenger things between the wheels. It was during the Grand Prix of Europe in uh, Valencia, Spain. Okay. I got to do that by, a, by an actual driver. That, yeah. Um, so you <coughs> did you drive or oh did you? Sorry. No, 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 no. We didn't drive. It was just a passenger. Okay. You, okay. No, they wouldn't. Yeah. They wouldn't trust right, us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The acceleration is what really makes those because you hit about 180 miles per hour. Okay. But you can yeah. do that in like a an expensive Mercedes Benz mm -hmm. or like an Audi or something. And I know because those people passed me on the Autobahn in Germany mm -hmm. when I had a Ford Fiesta that I rented. <laughs> <laughs> and I got oh, it up no. to 100 miles an hour yeah. and it like started shaking. <laughs> and there'd be someone that just goes <laughs> while I'm doing 100. Yeah. Always in an Audi. Uh, so high-end luxury cars can hit those kind of speeds, sure. but it's the acceleration that they have that yeah. really makes those cars difference. Okay. Um, oh, what else? Dog sledding I thought was great fun. Uh, photographing polar bears. Um, camping out in the Namib Desert in Africa. The uh, mindset is to try new things, is to that looks cool, I wanna experience it and feel it, or this is different and I'm curious about it. What's the uh, mindset Usually it was the in? opportunity was was there and I took yeah. it. Yeah. Um, some things I went out of my way. So like I uh, went swimming with whale sharks off the coast of Western Australia. That I went out of my way to do. Even though I, I think in hindsight I picked the most expensive place in the world to do it. But it was a pretty neat experience. What they do is they have a spotter plane circling overhead and whale sharks are the largest fish in the world. They're technically okay. a shark more than a whale. Mm. And when they see one, they notify the boat, the boat goes over there and then you jump in the water and with a snorkel and goggles and fins and just kick and keep up with it as much as you can. And they're actually, they're filter feeders. They're not, you know, the danger comes from like them hitting you with their tail or something because they're mm -hmm. so big. Um, but that was in the first time I did it, I, I jumped in the water and I, when I jumped in, it was like right in front of me. And uh, I didn't have a camera or anything. Uh, swimming in Palau and Jellyfish Lake mm -hmm. was a neat experience. They have this lake uh, in these islands, they're limestone islands, and in the middle the water seeped in and, and jellyfish got in through the cracks. And so you have this lake filled with jellyfish with no predators. They evolved away. Their stingers are all but the size of your fist. Okay. And uh, so I, I jumped in. I don't know any better. I'm from Wisconsin. Right. And everyone in the group with me is from Australia. And they grew up terrified of jellyfish. Right. It's yeah. like I... I don't know any better. So, yeah, I just I just did it, and, and that was that. Um, but they didn't have... Did you say they evolved away there? Yeah, they're, they're no stingers. Okay. They're safe. Okay. It's not like a box okay. jellyfish like you'd actually see okay. in Australia. Okay. These are... Yeah. Um, uh, this probably isn't going to convert well on audio or video. Um, <laughs> it's okay. But it's a... It, it's really surreal. And there's uh, no, I, there might be another place like it in Indonesia, which has another uh, set of islands like it, but it's, 
Mm. So it's literally a sea of jellyfish. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! And they'll they'll rub up against you and. and uh, Palau also has fantastic scuba diving. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been able to do dives all over the world. I did the dive off the where the lighthouse of Alexandria was in Alexandria, Egypt. Mm. So you can see the remains of it, which is the lighthouse of Alexandria is one of the wonders of the world. Uh, but it collapsed in an earthquake about 500 years ago. Um, I've seen Japanese zeros in the water off Papua New Guinea. Um, oh, lots of stuff. Yeah. Right, yeah. 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 There was a photo on your website of you about to do a bungee jump. I did oh, that. You're looking out. I did that twice, yeah. both times in New Zealand. Yeah. The first time was in Queenstown, and it was one of those things just to kind of say I did it. Yeah. And uh, I'm not afraid of heights, but it's also like jumping off of something is not a natural thing. Yeah. And it was kind of it was in Queens, Queenstown, New Zealand, on the South Island, and it was kind of one of those uh, rainy, drizzly days, so there wasn't a lot of people there for it. It was me and this family from India. Mm. And they had the the family had two girls, and uh, I don't know, like maybe like ten to thirteen, something like that. And they do it by weight, so the girls went first, and then after two little girls do it, you kind of have to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like right. thank you for showing me that it's an okay thing to do. Like you Let can't me borrow some of that confidence for a minute. Can't chicken out at that point. It's like God damn it. <laughs> then the other time I did it was in um, I was there in 2011 in Auckland for the Rugby World Cup, which mm. is another cool thing I got to see. Mm. Even though I'm not a huge rugby fan, um, I was there for the finals of the World Cup, mm -hmm. and uh, I went uh, bungee jumping off of the Harbour Bridge. Mm. Yeah, I got to walk over the Harbour Bridge at Sydney Harbour. Uh, that's a cool experience. Um, scuba diving in the Great Barrier Reef. Was what was the um, what was an activity where you had to like? Was there anything that you had that you needed some extensive training for, or maybe not even extensive, but like a little bit? Because like. Scuba diving? Did you have to kind of learn? Yeah. So as I was saying, when I when I began, I went out of my way to get uh, my basic certification in Maui. Okay. And then I got my advanced certification in Rarotonga, and then I later got uh, Nitrox certified in Palau, and I think I, yeah, I got my rescue diver certification in Thailand. Mm -hmm. I haven't I haven't dove at this point in years. Okay. I mean, it's yeah. not like. If you're living in the middle of the United States, there's a lot of opportunity. Although I did do it once in northern Wisconsin, mm. which was fascinating because mm. if you live around here, you're used to seeing lakes and whatnot, but you're never experienced them below the water. Yeah. Mm. And we had to wear a wetsuit. It really wasn't, it was in the middle of summer. Mm. And I was like, well, why, you know, I don't normally wear a wetsuit. It's like, trust me. So we go down and there's this area in a lake and pretty much every lake has them called a thermocline. Mm -hmm. that separates the warm and the hot water mm -hmm. and you viscerally feel it when you hit it because I went past I'm like oh my god is this cold and I spent mm -hmm. two minutes there before I had to go above it but also we were able to like you know pick up rocks and there were you know uh, crayfish underneath you could pick them up and hold them out and fish would come out and eat them out of your hand oh, wow. this was in Wisconsin yeah. uh, where, where is that this was up near cable okay so in in cable? northern northern Wisconsin yeah okay What's the rugby experience like? Those fans are different. It's a different environment than a than an American it is. sport. Yeah. The weird thing is, if you know American football, you can figure out what's going on in rugby almost instantly. Yeah. They have an end zone. They have goal posts. What they don't have is downs. And um, 
the scoring works a little bit differently. But you can figure out what, what, and there's no blocking. Blocking and downs, I think, are the two biggest things. Because yeah. I'm like, well, why doesn't, you know, they're coming after a guy, but it's like, just block them, stop them from doing that. It's, well, you can't do that. It's like, well, what's the point? <laughs> the, the fans, the energy in the stands. Well, especially in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, the, the three biggest sports in New Zealand are rugby, rugby, and rugby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's no surprise that a small country like that has become so dominant in that sport. Mm. And when I was there in 2011, they hadn't won the Rugby World Cup in several years, even though they've had the number one team. And so it was in New Zealand, and everyone was like going to kill themselves if they didn't win, and, and they beat France in the finals, and so all was well. But uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I've been on safari, uh, saw tons of wild animals. Um, Going to Antarctica and South Georgia Island was a huge thing. Uh, South Georgia is someplace that people don't know, don't really know much about, but it's really better than Antarctica. Hmm. Uh, Antarctica is mostly ice, mm -hmm. so there aren't a lot of wildlife. But if you go to the islands that surround Antarctica that are a little to the north, they're huge penguin breeding grounds, and you can see, you know, a quarter million penguins on the beach, and it's an incredible hmm. experience. And it's loud, and they have no fear of humans, and it smells horrible. <laughs> it just smells of poop and dead penguins. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> I want to make a candle. It's <laughs> pooping dead penguins. <laughs> buy that. There's a market for that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to um, let's go back to the podcast. Um, so you're doing this daily. You're basically writing a research paper every day. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Um, you're basically writing a research paper every day and um, how sort of what is your daily routine look like? How do you sustain that? Um, it's a job. Okay. People go to work every day. They wake up, they go to work for eight hours, they come home. Yeah. It takes me Sometimes. about... Some people. <laughs> Some people. Yeah, the traditional way of work. Yeah. But the point is, even if you don't go to a job, you, 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 there's work that you do every day, right? Yeah. And this is my job. Mm -hmm. I spend about, on average, four hours, I think it probably takes me to do an episode, maybe sometimes a little more. Mm -hmm. uh, for the longest time, I would do it while watching TV, which turns out doesn't work very well. But like, I watched all of Mad Men over a period of like a month. <laughs> Uh, and I would just, you know, be writing and kind of watching and it's much more effective when I, when there's nothing in the background. Yeah. Um, especially Mad Men. <laughs> you can get into that show. I don't I, I did. <laughs> but that's, it's just a matter of doing it. Mm -hmm. If you treat it like a job. And the reason I chose to do a daily show mm -hmm. is because, and it's the reason I became good at, at photography. Once I realized that photography was very important to travel. I, I started publishing a photo every day to my website. Mm. This was before Instagram, okay. Okay. right? So if you yeah. wanted to, to share photos, I did that for eight years. Yeah. And in that eight years, I went from being kind of a novice to winning the award for travel photographer of the year in North America. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said for getting in your reps and doing something every day mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making that public. I love mm -hmm. that. Because yeah. when something is public, People are going to see it yeah. and you don't want something that sucks. If you don't make something public, you're, you don't have that incentive to improve. 
And with a podcast, uh, it's also just a business reason. Mm-hmm. More episodes is more downloads, is more opportunity to make money. Right. So just from a business standpoint, I had the idea for a show like this uh, two years before the pandemic. All the artwork for my show, the theme music, was all selected two years before I ever started the show. But my original show was going to be like a two-hour long show where I went real deep on something. Mm -hmm. And I realized this was not a good business idea. Mm -hmm. So I scrapped it. And then when the pandemic hit, I went back to it and I was like, well, maybe I could do it, do the opposite. Instead of a big show infrequently, I could do a smaller show frequently. Yeah. And it turns out that was probably the right move. Yeah. Because I just, and I, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about podcasting. It's like, oh, you have to figure out who your site's avatar is. Who are you writing? It's like, my avatar is me. I made the show that I wanted to listen to mm-hmm. on topics I find interesting. Mm-hmm. And I figured mm-hmm. that if I find it interesting, someone else there will. Someone else will. And that. that's kind of what happened. And I'm going to do it consistently <laughs> enough to find that out. I'm dedicated to doing this. Did you have moments when it was like, oh, sure. This, yeah, this is hard. This isn't working. I'm not sure. Most podcasts don't make it to episode seven. Yeah. And the reason is because they start a show and it's not a priority. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasting. I'll start a podcast. And it's number seven on the list of things in their life. And when things get busy and they always do, mm-hmm. something has to suffer. The podcast goes away and they don't come back to it. Yeah. The other thing that kills podcasts is um, you don't see growth. You're not seeing success. Mm-hmm. And when you don't see success, it's easy to get frustrated. You as a host, you as a creator don't see the success. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. And I, yeah. and I saw that with this podcast. Now I'm doing a million downloads a month. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. But there was a period where it plateaued for a while. It's plateauing right now. But it's plateauing at a million dollars a month so I can live with it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all, that's also kind of planned. Yeah. Um, because right now I had all... I had, I, my, my, I, the show grew so much. I had this unsold inventory. And if I had kept growing and putting money in, into growing it, I would have had, instead of a million unsold ad spots, I would have had two million. So who cares? Uh, so I, I waited several months. The company I'm with eventually filled up the pipeline. It's filled right now. That radically changed everything. So in about June, maybe the end of May, I'm going to start promoting and marketing and heavily again. Mm. You talked a little bit about where your ideas come from or how you generate new ideas for a daily show. Can you share that? Every time I come across something, I just write it down. And usually one episode will beget more episodes. That's kind of often how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did an episode on how uh, horses came to North America. If you think of a ho- we think of American Indians on horseback. There were no horses in the Americas. Mm. What happened is all of the horses, and by North America, I'm really talking about north of Mexico, um, all came from a single ranch in New Mexico. Mm. And the Spanish were very adamant, do not trade horses with the natives. Because horses were a technology, mm-hmm. right? You can think of it as that. Right. It allowed for transportation. It allowed for speed. Mm-hmm. It, it allowed for a whole host of things that the Spanish had that the natives didn't. Yeah. So they were adamant, don't do that. Well, yeah. what ended up happening is the, the local natives had a raid on this ranch. They stole hundreds of horses. 
they started trading them and then you could just see on a map how over the years it just spread out and they began breeding these horses. And then there were groups like the Comanche who went in a period of maybe one generation from having never seen a horse to becoming the greatest, you know, light cavalry warriors in the world. Hmm. And I think it's a great counterexample to like, you know, people think that things in history take a long time for people to develop. It's like, no, it can happen real quick when it happens. Um, That's a fascinating <laughs> example of telling a story of something happened, getting people to think about it differently, getting people to understand it, and then have some knowledge or facts that they didn't have. Before. So the, the case was, how do I come up with these things? Yeah. So this was like a big picture thing about horses in North America. So that begets, well, how were horses domesticated in the first place? That occurred out in the Asian steppes. And then it was also, I could zoom in, what's the story of the Comanche? Because that's a fascinating story. Comanches don't have a reservation. Mm. And they are a very different tribe from many others. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a great YouTube video. It came, I forget what the movie it came from, where there's uh, in Oklahoma, this guy's at a, like a, a blackjack table or something. Mm -hmm. He's talking to some Comanche and he's kind of being surly with him. He's like, You know what Comanche means? And he's like, At war with everyone. He goes, Do you know what that makes me? It makes me a Comanche. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a very, yeah. And so, but the story of that tribe is very different. Sure. So then you can zoom in on that and then, okay, who are the great Comanches, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so there's always kind of another story that begets another mm -hmm. story mm -hmm. that, um, so I did a, a <clears throat> the invade, oh, go back for World War II, right? Mm -hmm. Well, then there's the invasion in Normandy. Within the invasion in Normandy, I did a trip a while back where I, I started in Southern England, crossed the English Channel, landed in Normandy, and then followed the same route as the Allies all the way to Berlin. Uh, and I learned about this thing called the Red Ball Express. Never heard about it before. But it was, Normandy wasn't a military invasion. It was a logistical invasion. And the logistics behind it were incredible. And part of it was literally trucks that had to deliver stuff. And it was an endless stream nonstop of trucks driving day and night called the Red Ball Express. Almost all the drivers were black. And learning about this and and how they were used then got me another thing. Well, then it gets you into like the Tuskegee Airmen and different, mm -hmm. you know, things about the black experience during the war, mm -hmm. um, different parts of the invasion in Normandy. So it, it, it just, it's kind of a never ending thing. And people say like, aren't you worried about stuff to run out doing episodes about? I'm like, there's no. Nothing. Yeah. 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 No, there's, I am not. There's always something to learn or something to, um, <clears throat> zoom in on and i started doing i kind of do series of things so i did uh i did one in the nile river and i'm like well i could just do one on the amazon and the mississippi and the congo and the mm -hmm. yangtze and the indus and all these other great rivers so i've started doing that and i kind of do like one of those a month and then i began doing one on the histories of great cities mm -hmm. so i did one on uh, paris um i uh, i'll probably be doing one on london soon probably one on kyoto um Beijing, uh, great cities of the world, kind of a thumbnail, 10 minute summary of kind of, you know, its history. Right. Um, so like I said, one, one episode begets another and it's just sort of nonstop. Mm. Mm -hmm. You describe a curiosity mindset. You want to learn about things and share them with others. Because it sounds like you're interested yeah. in learning yeah. that history. Let me, where does that, yeah, where, what's the origin of so that? So my theory of education is this. There are only two things you need to learn. You need to be literate, which for the most 
part we do a good job on. There's gaps. I'm working on a project for that. There are gaps on that. And I'm I think not, we need, I'm with you, the importance of that. Most people can read, but it's by all means not perfect. Yep. And, but the second thing is curiosity. Yep. And in that, we fail horribly. Mm-hmm. Most kids don't want to be in school. They don't care to learn. Most of what is learned, both in college and in high school, is forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which is why you end up with things that people can't uh, pick out a country on the map, even their own country. They can't tell you the names of you know any world leaders or anything like that because and, and they don't care. And the fact is, you can get by without knowing a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that being curious is where everything starts. And curiosity is beaten out of children because our entire educational system is based around somehow we've come up with the idea that if you sit in a room with 20 to 30 people the same age as you and listen to someone talk for 50 minutes and then a bell will ring and then you move and do the same thing on a different subject and just do this over and over that somehow this is the optimal way of human learning. Preach. (laughs) And it is not. And if you look at you know, the, the, our, our modern system of schooling began roughly in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, mm. as a solution to, tr- to educate people to work in factories. Yeah. Mm. If you look at the greatest minds of like the 19th and even early 20th century, almost all of them um, were schooled at home. And it wasn't called homeschooling. It was called right. aristocratic tutoring. Okay. And this created some of the world's greatest minds. And I was in a discussion with someone on Substack about this, that this method has been proven to work. Yeah. It's not something that scales easily. Mm -hmm. I admit that. Mm -hmm. It works great for one person. Mm -hmm. Like if aliens were to come down and like this little girl was born and they said, she's going to save the world, train her well. And they left and we didn't know what they meant. We just had to give her the best education possible. We're not going to send her to the local grade school. Right. Yeah. She's going to be tutored by the best and brightest and allowed to follow curiosity because you can go for, you know, you can start with an interest in dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and wind up learning about, well, how do they date dinosaurs? Oh, well, they do it through these methods, which gets you into physics and and other things and math. And you learn about this stuff through a process of of things you're interested in, Mm -hmm. which makes you remember it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and want to learn it. (laughs) Right, and have some motivation to, yeah. So, yeah. but the thing is, yeah. if aristocratic tutoring works, billionaires don't do this for their kids. They will spend $50,000 a year to send their kids to a private school. Right. And why is that? It's because the function of higher education is not about learning anything. Mm-hmm. It's about signaling. Would you, here's, here's a question. You're given two choices. One, You can have all the benefits of a Harvard education. You can learn everything that they do, attend all the courses, but you will never get a degree and no one will ever acknowledge that you attended. Option two, you learn nothing, but you get a Harvard diploma and they'll acknowledge that you went there. Almost everyone will take option number two. Hmm. Because what matters isn't learning. What matters is to be able to say, oh, I went to Harvard. Right, yeah. What is the success metric they're driving towards? Uh, a powerful job, right? Like, I think that's it, right? Like half, more than half of all graduates of Harvard within their first few years are getting a job either in finance yeah. or consulting, I think. Yeah. It's, it's those two things. Yeah. 
of all the people that write their admission, their essays for their admission to Harvard, how many are putting that down as a career they aspire to? Zero. They're going to talk about, oh, I want to help poor people. I want to go, you know, that's what they'll say. And then what they do is they go take high paying jobs somewhere. Yeah. It's simply yeah. about a social pecking order. The, the, mm. it's, it's an American way of doing an aristocracy. Instead of saying, I'm the Lord Baron such and such, they have legacy admissions and degrees. And that's what we do to basically achieve the same thing. Hmm. That has nothing to do with travel. But I, I love no, that. No, this is uh, good. Yeah. This so, is but this gets back to, to my show and in, in, in education. Yeah. I think, I, I think education, higher education especially, is self-destructing. It costs mm. so much money. And it is becoming so useless. And everyone knows it. Yeah. Everyone who uh, has a degree, they went to college, they, the vast majority will tell you that what they do has nothing to do <laughs> with what they, they got a degree in. Yeah. And what getting a degree says is you can show up someplace for four years and be on time and jump through hoops and mm -hmm. follow instructions. And that was enough for some employee, <laughs> employers at the time. Or that's what they were yeah. looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, historically, maybe, right? But, are we at a, are we at a breaking point where well, that's different? No. The thing people say is, well, if you go to a college, you know, your lifetime earnings yeah. will be this much more. First of all, that's a correlation, not a causation. If none of those people went to school, who do you, there's still going to be differences in, in the amount of money people make. And the people who would have gone probably would still be the ones making the most. Right? Because mm -hmm. they're the brightest. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it's not that college makes you earn more. And, but the thing is, that became a self referencing, a self referential uh, thing, and it just became true. So then you started seeing places requiring a college degree for jobs like being a waitress mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, administrative work. Uh, the state of Maryland recently got rid of their college degree requirement for like 80% of their jobs. Because they weren't necessary. Yeah. People yeah. thought that by doing this, well, all you're doing is blocking more people out of the labor market. Yeah. yeah. Some of which would be very talented. Yeah. When I, uh, my old company that I used to ran, my best programmer ever didn't have a college degree. Mm -hmm. And what he did is he came in and he just gave me sheets of code. I can and I looked this. at it mm -hmm. and I was like, we, this was very early with the, the, the program we were using. You couldn't do a lot of stuff. And he figured out a way to do it. And I was like, I, I didn't know you could do this. He goes, yeah, I just did. The, and I was like, yeah, you're hired. Um, but I think there needs to be more things like that um, where you demonstrate competence. Right, yes, yeah. And not just have the signal of a diploma from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. If we back that up to high school, though, a high school diploma, uh, that is <clears throat> opportunity to... Right, like I think... Uh, Having Give me your take on that. Having a high school, the important thing of having a high school diploma is you want to avoid not having a high school diploma. Having a high school diploma is the baseline. It mm -hmm. only becomes an issue when you don't have it. And then the question is, well, why? Yeah. Right. Were you in trouble with the law? Why are you just dumb? You know, what was the, you know, then the, it raises a bunch of questions. So that's the thing with a high school diploma. You know, once you graduate from high school, has anyone ever asked you what your grades were? Or asked you what courses you took right. or yep. anything about high school. Yep. It's simply a binary. 
Mm-hmm. Did you graduate? Did you not graduate? Mm-hmm. The end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No one will ever look or care about your grades from high school again. Your transcript will not matter. Yeah. That's all. So what, what to take it back to the show, <laughs> my, the, the podcast is about curiosity yeah. and I have a wide range of people that listen wide range, mm-hmm. truck drivers, mail carriers, students at MIT, nine-year-olds, you name it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great because I throw a wide net on the numbers of topics I cover and a lot of people then will find one of those things that they're interested in and they'll start doing more research on their own. Yeah. They'll go get a book. They'll go more in depth. I mean, I cover some of my episodes are topics that somebody could spend a lifetime doing research on. Mm-hmm. And I try to cover it in 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's only so much you can do. Um, but it also involves serendipity. And this is also something that's lacking. Mm. We are online encountering uh, companies that use algorithms to show us what they think we want. And the problem is once they do that, they just keep showing you the same thing. Mm -hmm. Good example. Um, There are more people in the world today who believe the earth is flat than there were 20 years ago. How is this possible in a world where we have live satellite images? We have all the information in the world at our fingertips that there are more people who think the world is flat. And there was a fascinating documentary that came out that did, it was on flat earthers and they went to a flat earth convention to which the guy said, there are people from all over the globe that flew in. Um, <laughs> but they asked them all, like, why do you believe this? How did you get started? Yeah. All of them said a YouTube video. Yeah. And I came across a video on YouTube where it was Joe Rogan talking to one of his friends who they were talking about flat earth stuff. It's not that Joe Rogan thought that the earth was flat, but they right. were just talking about it. And yeah. the the title of the video was, you know, something, something flat earth. Mm-hmm. So I watched it. Then a couple other videos came up about flat earth. Mm-hmm. So I clicked on one of them and then it started showing me more videos about flat earth. And that's how people get sucked into it. Mm-hmm. They, they innocently click on one thing and then they're being showed all this stuff and they're reading all this stuff. And the next thing you know, they think the earth is flat. And that's because of its algorithms constantly keeping you in a bubble, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever that bubble might be, reinforcing what it it thinks that you want to see. So you consume more content uh, over and over. I have two close relatives who are QAnon people, Mm. hardcore. They think Hillary Clinton is dead. Joe Biden is dead and a whole bunch of other people. And they were replaced with doubles and... They have no basis. This is what they think. Right. But it's all because they they are in this bubble and this is all they listen and all they consume. Yeah. Yeah. So this notion of serendipity is being exposed to stuff you, you didn't know. Yeah. And so the show, the reason why the show is completely random is that it's exposing people to things they didn't know they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a great... Uh, it's like it takes a minute long, but uh, the former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld during the Iraq War was answering a question. He goes, "There are known knowns, there are known unknowns. There's things we know we know. There are things we know we don't know. Mm-hmm. But then there are things we don't even know that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so by doing that, 
and I tell people like, it don't don't just listen to the episodes where you you know what it is. Listen to the episodes where you have no clue what it is, because oh. mm-hmm. that's where you're going to learn the most. Mm-hmm. You can be like, well, I didn't I didn't know that. Um. <clears throat> oh, and there's other things I don't know, and I don't know eighty percent of the things. Right? Once you get to a, a good point example, that is... I wrote an article for my blog a while back called "The More I Travel, the Dumber I Get." Yeah, <laughs> because I was exposed. To, to more and more things that I didn't know I didn't know. Yep. I was in Singapore, and this one woman was taking me around showing me the city. And she brought me to this uh, section of Singapore where the Peronican people live. Have you ever heard of the Peronican people? No. Nope. No? Neither did I. The Peronicans are the descendants of Chinese traders that came down the Malay Peninsula. Uh, they took Malay wives, they converted to Islam, and they developed kind of their own culture. It was a Chinese... Malay Islamic culture, their own food, their own dress, everything. Never heard about them. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to go to some Peronican stores. I saw everything. And then all of a sudden, once I knew that they existed, who are some famous Peronicans? Well, what do they eat? And all these things I didn't know came flooding in. And that was just by, you know, turning the lock of and opening this door. Like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff in there I didn't even know. And that happens all the time. Yeah. Your memory is a superpower as well. What are your superpowers mm. that, that enable you to do this on a daily basis, to consume and to do that research and to understand it and to write about well, it? Well, I don't have a life. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. <laughs> That's not even a joke. I mean, do you... I, I move back. To, this is my hometown. That? I grew up here. I don't yeah. know anybody here. I've been away for 30 years. I couldn't... Yeah. Even if I, if I met someone I knew in high school, I wouldn't recognize them. Yeah. It's been so long. They wouldn't recognize me. Um, so I just, I work on the show. Yeah. I am like, I can remember certain things off the top of my head and I'm bad with other things. Mm. Like there's a good chance if we were to meet in a month, I would remember that you're from Amherst, Wisconsin, that you went to UW Stevens point that you live in Nina and I might forget your name. Yep. And I, I have this weird thing of knowing facts about people Mm -hmm. and then I'll forget their name and that's really embarrassing. Yeah. Because the, your name is the one thing you're supposed to remember. Um, so I that, almost I, that think I, it's more impressive to remember the other things. I, I mean, I wouldn't be mad if you remembered things about me but didn't remember my name. But that's, maybe that's just me. <laughs> I, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm good at knowing, which is why... People always ask me, it's like, well, how can you do it? It's like, I just, I know a lot of this stuff from mm-hmm. reading and from traveling and from other things. Yeah. Uh, so, and so I usually have an idea of what I'm going to say before an episode starts. And it's just a matter of putting everything together. Yeah. Um, not tomorrow's episode, but Saturday's episode is going to be on the Pantheon in Rome. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm-mm. It's the best ancient building still standing hmm. incredible condition you can visit it and it has the world's largest um concrete dome two thousand mm-hmm. years later it's still i think it if it's not the largest it's like one of the largest concrete domes in the world mm. and it was built actually it, it's part of a sphere the bottom half of it it's not there but um and out in the front it says uh, in Latin, with, with some abbreviations, this was built by the consul uh, uh, Agrippa, uh, Marcus Agrippa, uh, son of such and such. 
And <clears throat> it's not the original building. It was the original one was built by Agrippa, who was the number two guy of Augustus. I did an episode on him as the number one at being number two. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was then rebuilt by the Emperor Hadrian, and there's so much respect for Agrippa that they left the inscription on it. Uh, and he didn't give credit to himself, which is very rare for a Roman emperor to do. But anyways, this is still standing, and it's in, it is the best ancient building, like I said, still standing. Hmm. It's like in incredible condition. Hmm. And it's something that if you're ever in Rome, you have to, you have to see it um, because it's this huge dome. And you're, you know, they didn't have the construction techniques that we did. And it's still just a marvel kind of engineering how they pulled it off. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you talk about not having a life and not bra- and that's not a brag. No. I I've spent the last well more than 15 years now uh by myself traveling. Yeah. Um I've offered to pay for people to join me on the road, no one took me up on it. Really? Yeah. People, I'll go travel. <laughs> people say they want to do it. Yeah. But when there are a lot of things people say, oh, I'd love to do that. But when they're, when they really, really are given the opportunity mm-hmm. and they didn't expect it, they don't want to. Yeah. They're afraid to, to do something different to, you know, fear the unknown. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking about with, um, with a curiosity mindset and, um, this idea that there's so much that we don't know or knowing that, um, what, how did you put that, um, that, that we don't know what we don't know. Right. And I wonder if part of people's resistance to curiosity is their, um, sort of, you know, wanting to have something to know or wanting to feel like they do know something or that there's a comfort in knowing. I think so. Yeah. I think think it's an uncomfortable feeling for some to say, I didn't know this. I don't know this. I'm not familiar. And I'm interested in learning more about it. Yeah. How often do people change their mind on a subject? Right. It's a question I ask a lot. When was the last time you changed your mind on something? Because it, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you an example of, of, of mine traveling. Um, I'm a big believer in, you know, letting people do what they want. I'm mm-hmm. not a big believer in laws and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That by and large, if you remove restrictions, things will be better. Not necessarily great. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in Samoa. Samoa is a wonderful country, wonderful people. And I was on the, the the main island of Upulo is where the capital is. I went to the other island of Savai'i, smaller population. And we were driving around and there were no, there was no evidence of commerce. There were no stores. There were no signs of, like I drove around the rural areas of the Philippines. There'd be signs all over, tire repair, mm-hmm. whatever. Everyone's doing whatever they can to make a buck, right? Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it might be, you know, a seamstress or whatever. There was nothing in Samoa, nothing. Hmm. There was a nightclub, I think, in a small store where the dock was from the ferry from the other island. That was it. Hmm. And each village had a tiny little uh, cinder block 
store where they sold stuff like diapers and instant noodles to people in the village. But it wasn't like a store store. It was just more like a commissary. Okay. So I asked one of the guys who was a taxi driver. It's like, where where is everything? And he explained that they have a very strong uh, system of villages and family in Samoa. Very strong. Mm -hmm. And if you make anything, it's expected that like 90% of what you make is going to go to your family and your village. Mm -hmm. And it takes away, and this is not a law. Right. Right. So this isn't like the government step stepping in. This was, uh, this is cultural. Mm -hmm. And so he said, what a lot of people do is they leave Samoa and they go to New Zealand or Australia and, uh, they get jobs and they send some money back, but they're not sending back 90%. They're sending back some, what that, that's a good amount mm -hmm. for people in Samoa, but, um, and, and they go and they go to get away from their family and you see this all over, um, People from India, the Indian diaspora, does far better outside of India than they do in India. Hmm. Uh, you see that in a lot of different places where people excel. Uh, Nigerian Americans are actually one of the highest earning groups in the United States and one of the best educated. Hmm. Um, but they don't do as well in Nigeria, but they do well when they leave Nigeria. Right. And a lot of it is because of different, let's say you started a business in India and you're doing well. And your aunt comes over and says, oh, your cousin Rajiv, he really could use a job. He's down on his luck and you feel obligated to hire him. Mm -hmm. And you get all these family obligations and everything else. Mm -hmm. And it ends up kind of uh, bringing the business down. Okay. Uh, so what I learned from that is the power of culture. Mm -hmm. and, and as a flip side to that, talking about like Samoa, I was in Hong Kong. I was walking around one day and I walked past a Burger King. And in the front window of the Burger King, it was filled with flowers. Like a funeral. Mm. Now, I know their motto is have it your way, but I don't think having a funeral at a Burger King. I didn't know what it was. So why would you have flowers at a Burger right. King? Yeah. So I walked inside to check it out. And I started looking at the flowers. And they all have like cards in them. Most of them are in uh, Chinese. So I didn't know what it was. And I found one that was eventually in English. Mm -hmm. And it said, congratulations on your grand opening. Mm. The starting of a business was something to be celebrated yeah. by everyone. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that was what kind of dawned on me is that these were not government things. These are cultural things yeah. and the power of culture. We think of culture as food and dress and music. That's not really culture. Yeah. Those are the trappings of culture, right. right? What is real culture is the stuff in your head. Mm. It's what drives someone from Japan to work 80 hours a week mm -hmm. where they feel they have to be at the office all the time, even though they're not doing anything. Mm. Or what, you know, it, it's the expectations and the, no, the social norms. Yeah. That's culture. Yeah. And culture can be good and it can be bad. Sometimes it can be both the same thing. Mm. It's a trade-off. It's not necessarily good or bad. Right. Um, but, but that is a, a very powerful force that I think most people kind of ignore. And culture can change. Mm -hmm. Um. Immigrants to the U.S., regardless of where they're from, tend to work harder. They work longer. Their children do better in school. It's because they're motivated. Mm -hmm. They have a reason. They knew what it was like to not have this. And so they make damn sure that they're going to succeed. Once you've lived here several generations and it becomes the norm, you just kind of become used to stuff. And Yeah. 
I love that. I think about culture a lot, and that helps me think about it differently. Uh, that definition. And, I, and, and culture isn't just a, like American culture. We have a different culture mm-hmm. in Wisconsin yeah. than we do in the South, right. than they do in New York. Mm-hmm. And we, it, it's, it's a weird Venn diagram, right? Mm. Um, where every person may have overlapping groups that they, you know, you may belong to a religion that has a certain set of norms mm-hmm. than, than someone else who's your neighbor even though you live in the same place. Right. Um, and I especially, you know, one of the reasons I, I, ch- I could have lived anywhere in the world, I chose here. Well, obviously my family was here. I'm from here. But a lot of the people, my two least favorite cities in the United States are New York and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I have a four-day limit in New York. I got to go there sometimes for, for business, and that's fine. But beyond four days, I just absolutely hate it. And Los Angeles is maybe two. <laughs> um, and it, it largely has to do with the people. Mm. And I, I, I'm not going to get into that. But, sure. Um, yeah. You don't want to step on any time. <laughs> I also believe, and the other thing is that the, the need for cities, I think, is disappearing. Mm. It used to be you had to, mm. there was a, a people congregated who were in the same industry. The right. automotive industry was in Detroit. Yeah. Finance was in New York. Entertainment was in Los Angeles. Commodity training was all in Chicago. Tech out west, right? Like Silicon Valley. Beer used to be Milwaukee. Yeah. Like damn near every beer except for Anheuser-Busch was made in Milwaukee. Um, That's not true anymore. Mm -hmm. I can be online and communicate and work with people about anything anywhere. Yeah. And so this this need, and people are discovering this, that, you know, from, with the pandemic, that kickstarted everything. Mm -hmm. Technically, we've been able to do it for quite a while, but culturally... We now realize we can work from home. Yeah. We can be more effective. We enjoy it more. And people are quitting their jobs rather than having to go back into the office. Mm-hmm. I don't blame them. And if I can go, I, I now live uh, in the River Heath Apartments near the College Avenue Bridge. Mm-hmm. It's a very nice building, brand new. And for what it cost me to have a two-bedroom apartment would cost me $6,000 a month in New York. Right. Maybe yeah. more for what I'm paying. Even in a place like Milwaukee or Minneapolis, it's going to cost me a lot more. Mm-hmm. I'm right on the river. I hear geese every morning mm-hmm. that wake me up. Uh, there's lots of fresh air, and I have a gigabit internet connection. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to live some in, in 15 to 20 minutes I can be in a cornfield if yeah. absolutely necessary? Yeah. Um, and that really kind of struck home when I lived in Minneapolis when the riots took off during the pandemic. Both before the riots happened, I began rethinking this notion of like, if I needed to get out of here, how long would it take me? Mm. From where I was living, it would take me an hour, hour and a half, assuming no traffic. Mm-hmm. With traffic and everyone trying to get out, right? horrible. Yeah. Here, I could walk there. Mm-hmm. It might be a long walk. It might take mm-hmm. a couple hours, but it's doable. Um, yeah, and I, I just don't, I don't see the the point in it anymore. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people I know who live in New York and Los Angeles, all they all desire to make it big and none of them do. Mm-hmm. And they just pay through the nose for it. And by the time they hit, you know, 40 or something, they have nothing to show for all their time there and they, and they end up leaving. Yeah. <clears throat> what does desire to make it big mean? Rich and famous. Yeah. I think that's, and it's also, no, it's also status seeking. Yeah. Mm. And let me explain this. So when I started my travel blog, 
I had to deal with the world of travel journalism that I had never encountered before. Mm. And these were magazines like Condé Nast Traveler, Travel and Leisure, many travel sections of newspapers. I, dealt, I got to know a lot of uh, big news editors of travel sections, none of which exist anymore. They all been fired and closed down. Uh, National Geographic. And in this world where you, one becomes a journalist and pursues a career in journalism, there's a totem pole. On the bottom, you get a job at some place. I won't even say like the Post Crescent. I'll say something below that, right? And then maybe there's the Post Crescent, and then you work your way up to Milwaukee, and then you work your way up to, you know, a big New York Times, Washington Post type thing and mm -hmm. become an editor or something. So there's this hierarchy, right? Right. What I was doing wasn't on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. So people had no respect for it whatsoever. Mm. None. They didn't mm -hmm. legitimize it. They didn't see it as legitimate. Right. And over time, they all lost their jobs. They got downsized. And they all came to me asking advice about what to do. Mm -hmm. And I just kept, I, 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 mean, I still believe, if you want to be a, crea a creator, create content, unless you're doing something like Marvel movies, which require a huge budget, mm -hmm. Being an independent content creator and keeping your costs low is the key to success. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing it all the time. Uh, BuzzFeed, they just shut down BuzzFeed News. Vice, Vox, all these things are being sold and resold because they're downsizing. Because you can't, they tried to become a big media conglomerate online and it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Where you, how are you doing? 10 minutes. There's got to be more. Oof. Oh, there goes so much more. Two-part interview. Way more than yeah, 10 minutes. Yeah, two-part interview for sure. Yes, please. Um, so let's talk about... Let's see. We talked a little... Did we talk about your routine? Kind of. We kind of went... I don't know if I have a routine yet. Yeah. Uh, I probably need to get into one. Lately, my show has, I've been waking up really early to write the show that day, and I don't yeah. think that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to get into doing it the day before and and then doing the show. But kind of having, um, like, scheduling it out a bit, or are you. Are you ideally, able it's just to... difficult to do, to, to write and research two shows in a day. In a day, yeah. I can do yeah. it, but you're, you're rushing ahead to then. Now take time off and then you're right back to where you were. Right. So. Yeah. The long-term solution will be to hire a writer mm -hmm. or writers. Um, let's talk about the Appleton Podcast Co-op because that's something that you're a part of, we're a part of, um, and I'm going to get to, hopefully you can too, um, start going to more of those. And how many people so, show up? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um so that is kind of one way that you find a little bit of social connection. I really want to talk more about that social connection aspect. Like, how do you, because, okay, so where is this coming from? Your facts on your website. One of the questions was um, with regards to traveling alone, right? Like, do you get lonely? And then you wrote sometimes and talked about like wanting more people to come with so how do you sort of like like what do you do is it does the appleton podcast co-op help with some of that like having it's that social network two hours once a month once a month yeah uh and it's basically yeah. the same four people that show up every time yeah of which 
only two have a podcast, really. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I like hanging out with them, but. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I want to go. Where else are you yeah. building community? Yes. Thank you. I think that's it. I think, yes. yeah. Um, we talk about just kind of the pillars of what makes us healthy. Jess talks about it more than I do. Yeah. Um, social connection being a big piece of that. I really think that social connection, hydration, and sleep are like the top three most important things that we can do for our health. Not too uh, just from like, yeah. right. Yeah. I I don't I don't I don't get out of the my apartment most days. Um, yeah, like I said, I don't know anybody in the community, and you're at an age where if you're male and older, I mean you're just a creepy old guy. So it's not like you can go and meet people. So mm. it's yeah, I don't. I wouldn't even know where to go. Part of what we're doing here is social connection. Part of mm-hmm. what we're doing here is lifting up conversation. Um, part of what we're here is is meeting new people and meeting <clears throat> fascinating people like yourself. Uh, so you taking a step to be on our podcast and meeting us is social connection for us yeah. and, and social connection for our guests. And I think that's what we'll continue to navigate <clears throat> what that looks like. And I think it looks mm-hmm. like different things to different people mm-hmm. uh, yeah uh, let's talk about what is something that is um, like how do you navigate authenticity through the performance of the podcast in life in general because that's one of the one of the two of the pillars I think of the show is authenticity and vulnerability um, well, authenticity is, is pretty simple. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're pretty much who you are. <laughs> yeah, I, that that's not a. It's never been a problem with me. I've never yeah. tried to be anything else. When I talk yeah. about performing on the podcast, I'm talking more about vocally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, you just don't read the script like this, yeah, and then Julius right. Caesar at the Battle of Elysia <laughs> built yeah. the second wall. <laughs> the, you need to do it in a way that's interesting and engaging. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the thing, and uh, that that just comes from my background in speech and debate that Mm -hmm. I've become pretty good at doing that. Um, And because it's scripted, I don't think there's a whole lot of opportunity. I'll I'll throw in personal anecdotes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I visited this place, or I'll rip on the Chicago Bears if I get a chance, which has kind of become a running (laughs) joke. (laughs) Um, In fact, I have an advertiser. uh, It's one of those uh, uh, sports betting fan, uh, you know, fantasy sites that, that want to run a thing. And they were asking, like, one of their questions is, like, are you a fan of any team? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm an owner of the Green Bay Packers, which mm-hmm. is something I've always loved telling people traveling because they don't know what that means. Right. Like, if I say an American, yeah. like, I'm an owner of an NFL team, they probably guess, you know, you're, mm-hmm. uh, you're a Packer shareholder. But they don't know what that means in Australia mm-hmm. or England. Yeah. Like, they don't, they think you're a billionaire or something. <laughs> <laughs> Like you have a luxury box and it's like, no, it's, there's right. this team in Wisconsin and it's a small city and you buy shares and yeah. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about, cause I am interested in how people, um, choose or, um, uh, yeah, I guess choose their sponsors or maybe sponsors approached you, um, and you said <coughs> yes. So what all of that? my sponsorship stuff is handled by a different company. That is the oh, one okay. area that I don't, oh, and I don't okay. want to. 
okay. because I'm bad at sales. Sure. Okay. Uh, when I started my company in the 90s, that's one of the things I learned very quickly is the importance of a salesperson. Mm-hmm. And I also learned very quickly that I'm bad at it. Mm-hmm. There is a certain amount of interpersonal skill that you need to have mm-hmm. that I lack. Mm-hmm. I do not have it. I don't have the patience for it. And uh, I am more than happy to pay people to do that. To do that. Yeah. Okay. And I recognize yeah. that as a unique skill set that I lack. Yeah. And don't want to get better at, or, or right, like I know, or, or you're not. I'm good at certain to, things. Yeah, yeah. I'm not good at that thing. Yeah. We had a woman who was our primary salesperson, and I, she was the highest paid person in the company, and I was comfortable with that mm-hmm. because she was the one that brought in the business that made sure that everyone else had a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people sometimes uh, under we're madmen. We we're talking about that before, right? Mm-hmm. Roger Sterling, what did he do? Right, he didn't do anything. He drank a lot. He smoked a lot. He had a bunch of affairs. But this process of like glad handing and schmoozing with clients, it's a thing, right? Right, yes. Yes. especially when millions of dollars are on the line. Yeah. And um, I'm not. That's actually not what goes on with like advertising on a podcast. Most of that is just like it's these big companies that just advertise on every podcast. Um, but yeah, it's a skill that I don't mm-hmm. have. And I don't want to have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I think we need to have Gary back. Oh, there's a thousand <laughs> things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> um, I oh, with, it, with this setup, we can actually do this at my place if you want. I think we can have a better background or something. Okay. Overlooking the river. We can, okay. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. We're uh, willing to do on, on site. Yeah. Wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else that is kind of burning in your heart that you want to share or in your brain? or? I would like to tell you about the, the good news of L. Ron Hubbard. The good news of L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Are you trying to convert us to Scientology? <laughs> I've been fascinated by Scientology for it years. Is, it is fascinating. Because it's like this soap opera. It, it, yes. And like L. Ron Hubbard is a combination of like Karl Marx and Lenin, and then he died, and then this other guy takes over as like Stalin, and he purges everybody and sends them off to like, you know, labor camps, literally. Yep. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. And yet there, well, less and less, but uh, there are still people who are firm believers in this stuff. Yeah. And, I am, this is why I think curiosity is so important. I'm just like critical thinking, thinking for yourself, knowing that we're all influenced in some form or fashion, but then like, where is that influence coming from? Several of my my more popular episodes were directly addressing the subject. So I did one Mm -hmm. on logical fallacies. Okay. Yeah. That went over real well. I did one on confirmation bias. And the great example of, they did an analysis of airplanes, uh, bombers that came back in World War II after doing a bombing run. And they said, well, look to see where the bullet holes are, and that's where we'll put the armor. And they found that the bullet holes were on the side of the wings, mm-hmm. and there were no bullet holes where the engines or the cockpit were. And one of the guys finally said, it's like, um, these are the planes that are surviving. <laughs> 
the planes with bullet holes in the cockpit and the engines don't make it back and we can't look at it. So the places we need to put armor aren't the yeah. places where there are bullet holes, it's the places where they are not bullet holes. Yeah. So if there are things like confirmation bias um, uh, and all sorts of, you know, uh, whataboutism. Mm -hmm. Like if you bring uh, one uh, politician of a party uh, does something wrong and then you bring it up and say, well, what about this person? Mm. Of the other party, it's like, well, what about it? Are you saying that because this person did it, that makes it okay? Or are you saying that it was wrong for that person and it's wrong for this one? Because right. they don't think this through. Because either one of those two, mm -hmm. you know. And there's all sorts of fallacies like that that, we, you know, we encounter all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're very critical about stuff, you see it uh, in the news and it's just maddening. Mm. Um, <clears throat> oh, what... Uh, Oh, what, what the hell is the name of it? It's the, um, I just came out, I was thinking of doing an episode on this. Um, the Gelman, Marie Gelman was a theoretical physicist at Caltech. It's not the Gelman hypothesis. It's the Gelman effect or something. Basically, if you know a lot about something and you read an article in the newspaper, you'll mm -hmm. find tons of problems with it. Right? Mm -hmm. So you know a lot about yoga. Mm -hmm. If and someone writes an article about a yoga studio or some newspaper, you're going to probably notice a bunch of things they got wrong, sure. right? Because the, the person who wrote the article, that's not their, right. they're just a writer, mm -hmm. right? They went and researched it and then they wrote it. But you, as someone who, who is into this you know, world, would know details that they got wrong or they missed or something like that. Mm -hmm. And everyone has an aspect of their life where they're an expert on something like that. Mm -hmm. And they can read something and they criticize it. But then they assume everything else they read isn't like that. Mm, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I got this yeah. written down on my like, list of short I don't, ideas. But... I don't know about this, but um, I don't know about this. So if I'm reading about it, oh, this, right, right you just make, you make an assumption that it's, it's good. Um, yeah, like that. To okay. be continued, yes. Gary. Thank you. No, thank you for no the problem. time and insight, oh and we'll continue this conversation. Anytime you want. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sure.